0: You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Merlions and orangutans, a new breed of entrepreneurs. An unnecessary extra. I arrived in Singapore as part of my CSR Quest world tour. Apart from the balmy weather, there is also a lot to like about Singapore. It is organised without feeling over-policed, despite the joke that it is a fine city, for everything there is a fine. The city is efficient and the people are friendly. Because of the mix of cultures and the cornucopia of shopping malls, There is a very cosmopolitan feel about the place. And yet, it is not all neon lights and concrete. There are plenty of green spaces and cultural sites to visit. Singapore literally means Lion City and has five Colossus Merlion statues in the city. I like the story of how the Merlion, Singapore's national icon, represents Singapore's past as a fishing village hence the mermaid's tail, and the future, a lion representing power and progress. One particular memory I have is walking along a busy boulevard, Orchard Road, just when the sun was setting and there were trees roaring with the deafening sounds of birds roosting for the night. During my visit I gave a talk on the future of CSR, hosted by the ever-amiable Thomas Thomas, and his Singapore Compact for CSR, as well as giving the closing address at the EU conference on CSR. I returned to Singapore twice and delivered a keynote speech on sustainability at the International Singapore Compact CSR Summit and another at the Fair Price Retail Conference on CSR 2.0 in the FMCG sector. As far as sustainable business in Singapore goes, I have mixed impressions. Evidence of explicit CSR, CSR reports, policies, managers and so on, is extremely limited and certainly lags other developed nations and some developing countries, including in Asia. However, I did find myself asking the question... If a government is extremely effective, as arguably it is in Singapore, does that limit the need and scope of sustainable business? Over the past 50 years or so, the Singapore government has succeeded in growing the economy, creating job opportunities, ensuring good working conditions, at least for nationals, and raising the standard of living, all in a tiny city-state with a few natural resources. Even on environmental issues, it has cleaned up the rivers, lowered air pollution, greened the city, and virtually eliminated its dependence on Malaysia for water. Could it be that sustainable business is an unnecessary extra, practiced only to placate Western markets and investors? On reflection, I think this would be a bit premature and misplaced as a conclusion. First, there seem to be some issues where, although progress has been made, there is still serious concern. For example, the rights and conditions of migrant contract workers on which the economy is dependent are still substandard. Transparency and integration of sustainable business issues into corporate governance and financial markets is also weak, and reducing the carbon intensity of the economy which includes the biggest container port and biggest gas refinery in the world and a prolific construction industry, remains a vast challenge. Sustainable competitiveness In addition to these areas for improvement, I must confess to being surprised that, despite widespread perceptions, including my own, of the government's being strong There seems to be a reluctance to take a lead on many social and environmental issues. For example, after meeting with the CEO of the National Environment Agency, I had the impression that the government is extremely hesitant to introduce any bold regulations or controls that might be seen as a cost or a risk to the competitiveness or security of Singapore's trade and industry. The water issue is illustrative – It was only after a political crisis with Malaysia that Singapore instituted the range of measures, including leading-edge filtration and desalination technologies, that now make it not only virtually water self-sufficient, but also a leading exporter of water technologies. I did hear talk of Singapore becoming a green IT, or clean tech hub for Asia, but I think the government's softly, softly approach will leave them far in the wake of countries like Korea, Japan and China. Even so, there is a lesson to be learned from Singapore. As a geographically small city-state with a relatively high population density, the government quickly faced up to the fact that there is no away. It had to deal with its own externalities rather than export them. Innovation was born of necessity. Poverty and pollution could not be tucked away in remote rural regions or ignored as the inevitable lot of a fringe slum society. Either the whole city prospered or it didn't. There was nowhere to hide poor governance. As the Asian tigers jockeyed for position in the region and the world in the 1980s and 1990s, Singapore made strategic investments in two areas. Its people, creating a highly skilled labour force, and its infrastructure, making it one of the most friendly trade and investment hubs in the world. Singapore knew that if it didn't get these two things right, it would have no competitive advantage. Most crucially, it would lose its upwardly mobile workforce to Japan, Korea or the West, and global economic activity would divert to other parts of Asia. We can all learn from this spaceship-earth, city-state thinking of Singapore. But for me, the jury is still out on sustainable business. Unless the government and companies can shake off the competitiveness-at-all-costs mentality, it may always be a sustainable business laggard, moving with the late majority, certainly not the worst, but far from the best. Somehow... Singapore needs to answer for itself the why question. Why is sustainable business relevant or important in Singapore? I'm betting this will inevitably lead straight to another question. How can business be made more competitive if it's sustainable in Singapore? Jack out of the box. There is a positive side effect of Singapore's obsession with competitiveness... It breeds entrepreneurs, and occasionally they turn out to be social entrepreneurs. Jack Sim is one such person who I was lucky enough to meet when I was visiting. As Sim recounts in his inspiring autobiographical book, Simple Jack, he grew up in extreme poverty in Singapore in the 1960s. This was a time when Singapore was poorer than Cambodia. His father was a provision shop assistant and his mother was a rural entrepreneur. Jack started his own business when he was just 25 and by 40 he was financially independent and decided to quit the rat race. Capitalism is a futile game after we've satisfied our basic needs, he concluded, and proceeded to hand over his business to his staff. He decided to devote the second half of his life to something more meaningful – namely improving sanitation around the world. In 1998, he established the Restroom Association of Singapore with a mission to raise the standards of public toilets in Singapore. He soon realised that there were existing toilet associations operating in other countries, but no channels available to bring these organisations together to share information and resources. There was a lack of synergy. As a result, in 2001, Sim founded the World Toilet Organization, WTO. He joked with me that he had hoped the World Trade Organization, which hosted its inaugural summit in Singapore in 1996, would sue him for copying their WTO brand and that the ensuing media fuss would raise awareness about the 2.6 billion people without toilets around the world. Sim forged ahead and declared 19 November as World Toilet Day, which is now celebrated in over 19 countries with over 50 events hosted by various water and sanitation advocates. He also introduced an annual World Toilet Summit and a World Toilet College. He credits Ashoka Fellow David Green, who was dedicated to making eye operations affordable in developing countries, with inspiring him to replicate the social business model for sanitation. Green advised him not to depend on donors, but rather to drive down the product cost to a level that the poor were willing to pay, thereby making the operation financially viable. This meant achieving production economies of scale and using local distribution, while simultaneously driving demand by marketing toilets as being a status symbol. Sim went on to establish a sales agent model, first tested in Cambodia, whereby WTO supplies toilets to the local poor, who earn a commission for every toilet sold. He also engaged partners in the first world. For example, he persuaded Index Award, the world's biggest design award body, to begin designing a Sunny Shop franchise to brand and design flat pack sanitation products for scaling up distribution in the third world. Many other prominent research universities and institutions also joined to share their experiences in product design, while USAID, LEN-AID and CLSA helped with funding. Part of SIMS' success can be ascribed to WTO's powerful aspirational model which triggers the poor emotionally to buy toilets as a priority purchase. Sim makes the case that each toilet door opens to a bright future of healthy children, daughters graduating, respect from the community, wives appreciating their new privacy, elders giving the thumbs up and people earning more money because no one is sick anymore. Despite WTO's success, With more than 235 member organisations from 58 countries, Sim is already working on WTO's next big thing, which is to establish a bottom-of-the-pyramid hub in Singapore, referring to the 4 billion people living at the bottom of the world's economic pyramid. The hub will act as a trade centre for the poor in developing countries to formulate, cooperate and merge business solutions to transform emerging markets into vibrant marketplaces. It will develop market-based solutions in sectors such as water, food, housing, energy, transportation and telecommunication. It's another big dream, but knowing what SIM is like, I wouldn't bet against it becoming a reality. Kit Kat Catastrophe From Singapore, my CSR Quest trip took me on to Malaysia, where Navin Maruga of Fours had arranged for me to deliver a training session. My first emotion on stepping out into the baking heat of Kuala Lumpur was relief. I was back in a developing country, albeit a fairly prosperous one. For me, it's like the difference between classical music, symbolising Europe or Singapore, pop the feeling of the United States, and jazz, the third world. I like all three styles, but jazz countries are where I feel most relaxed, most soulful. Typifying this anything-goes style, I stayed at a low-cost Tune hotel and was highly amused by the rooms. As I tweeted at the time, woke up to Maggie in the bathroom, not a woman, but a billboard for noodles inside my hotel room. McDonald's looks over me as I sleep. Scary. It was an interesting time to be in Kuala Lumpur with the Greenpeace Kit Kat campaign against Nestle having just gone viral. In a nutshell, Greenpeace accused Nestle of endangering orangutans through deforestation caused by its irresponsible palm oil supply chain in Indonesia. The campaign was specifically targeted at a Nestle supplier in Indonesia, but Malaysia is also a major world source of palm oil and it clearly got the attention of plantation companies like Saim Darby, a Malaysian company which supplies nearly 10% of the world market. Fortunately for them, according to their chief sustainability officer, they were ahead of the curve, with some plantations already certified by the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, and the rest scheduled for certification within a few years. Leaving aside the specific companies involved, the Greenpeace-Nestle palm oil debacle highlights the increasingly important role of sector-based codes and social media as new mechanisms for corporate governance and stakeholder accountability. The RSPO is part of the new generation of multi-stakeholder sustainable business codes, which have far more credibility than their industry-led predecessors like responsible care for the chemicals industry. It still has its problems, especially the ability for plantations to carbon offset rather than actually convert to sustainable practices, and the certification bottleneck that seems to be slowing things down. But it is part of the new web of sustainable business governance mechanisms that are needed to take responsible behaviour to scale. It will only work, however, when companies like Nestle, Carrefour and Unilever choice edit so that unsustainable palm oil is phased out completely. As far as social media goes, I believe the Greenpeace-Nestle campaign will become a classic sustainable business case study. One estimate calculates that within four days the Greenpeace report and shock video may have reached half a million people through social media like Twitter and Facebook. This viral effect was seemingly boosted by Nestle's attempt on its Facebook page to censor comments made by its critics. The fact that Nestle took swift action by dropping the accused Indonesian supplier and that their hands were effectively tied by a lack of available sustainable palm oil did little to quell the angry reactions of online activists. In the end, it took six months of negotiation and promises by Nestle before Greenpeace dropped the campaign. For peat's sake. A related but different issue that I became aware of during my time in Kuala Lumpur through a chance meeting with eco activist Matthias Garber is that most of the world's peat forests are in Indonesia and Malaysia. These underground forests are a colossal carbon sink asset for the world, and their loss poses a significant climate change threat. They are in urgent need of protection, but instead, intensive farming and deforestation is lowering the water table, drying out these organic soils, comprised mainly of undecayed leaves, and resulting in peat forest fires, which release massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and are hard to put out once they begin. This is exactly the sort of CSR issue that should be tackled in Malaysia where according to research by CSR Asia, Malaysia is only marginally ahead of Singapore and the Philippines, but behind Hong Kong. My observation, which was confirmed by the executive director of the UN Global Compact for Malaysia, was that strategic embedded sustainable business is still limited to very few large companies, such as those involved in the local UN Global Compact network. The progressive role of the government on sustainable issues, however, may yet pay dividends. This includes, for example, presidential awards for CSR, the creation of a green technology ministry and the implementation of a green buildings index. There is even talk of impending reforms to company law to redefine corporate purpose in terms of meeting stakeholder needs rather than continuing to follow the global model of shareholder fiduciary duty. If it was any other country, I would take this with a pinch of salt, but this is Malaysia, which dared to defy the IMF hegemony after the Asian financial crisis. If there is any government bold enough to challenge shareholder-driven capitalism, it is Malaysia. I for one hope that they have the courage to do so, because until we reduce the stranglehold that shareholders and financial speculators have over our companies and markets, It will always be like trying to sail against a gale, using only a handkerchief, namely CSR, as a sail. The trade winds of the market will always blow, but rather than tinkering with the sails, we need a new kind of vessel, a new model of responsible business that can not only navigate through the tempest, but also sail for calmer waters where long-term thinking is possible and preferable. Street Democracy After Malaysia, on the CSR World Tour, I headed to Thailand, a country I had first visited before when I was attending the CSR Asia Summit in Bangkok and taking the opportunity to launch the A to Z of corporate social responsibility. I also gave a keynote address on CSR and the financial crisis at the NGO Biz Network Conference and arranged to meet local members of CSR International. When I was back in Bangkok, I took the usual tourist sights in, a visit to the Grand Palace, a canal boat rise, a tour of the floating markets, and a trip to the city's electronics mega shopping malls. As part of the CSR Quest World Tour, I then talked to a packed house at an event hosted by the Thailand Stock Exchange, with sponsorship and support from Thai Health Promotion Fund, an NGO business partnership. As it happened, the hotel where I was staying was located right in the heart of the Red Shirts anti-government protests, which were going on at the time. They made for a very noisy 36 hours, with constant sloganeering and speechifying over loudspeakers day and night. I didn't really mind. The protests were all peaceful at that stage, although unfortunately they turned violent a few days later. I felt somehow privileged to have had such an intimate window on Thailand's rising social movement for democracy. Cabbages and condoms The most interesting sustainable business-related discovery in Thailand was undoubtedly cabbages and condoms, which I first visited before thanks to a recommendation by one of Thailand's sustainable business stalwarts, Alex Mavro. Behind this story is an organisation, the Population and Community Development Association and its founder and chairman, Mechai Viravaija. Today, PDA is one of Thailand's largest and most successful private non-profit development organisations. Among the many programmes and projects it runs is the quirkily named Cabbages and Condoms restaurant in Bangkok, a social enterprise dedicated to raising awareness on family planning and HIV and AIDS. Through PDA and his other activities, including serving as a senator in the Thai government and chairman of some of Thailand's biggest companies, Viravidya has played a pivotal role in Thailand's immensely successful family planning program, which saw one of the most rapid national declines in fertility in the modern era the rate of annual population growth in Thailand dropped from over 3% in 1974 to 0.6% in 2005, and the average number of children per family plummeted from 7 to under 2. Vera was also the chief architect in building Thailand's comprehensive national HIV-AIDS prevention policy and programme, This initiative is widely regarded as one of the most outstanding national efforts by any country in combating HIV and AIDS. By 2004, Thailand had experienced a 90% reduction in new HIV infections and by 2005, the World Bank reported that these preventative efforts saved 7.7 million lives throughout the country and saved the government over $18 billion in treatment costs alone. As a result of his outstanding work, Virivija was appointed the UN AIDS ambassador. I conducted an interview with Virivija and was most intrigued by his views. I started by asking him what demonstrable impact social enterprises can make on society's problems, using cabbages and condoms as an example. He told me, We originally referred to the Cabbages and Condoms restaurant as a business for social progress which is commonly known as a social enterprise in the West. The profits from our restaurant directly benefit our NGO, the PDA. The impact has included promotion of family planning in Thailand, HIV AIDS prevention through condom usage, poverty alleviation and education in northeastern Thailand. The restaurant has been a successful social enterprise and we always encourage civil society leaders in Asia to set up one to help maintain financial stability. So what then are the barriers to scaling up social enterprises like cabbages and condoms? According to Virovaidya, the biggest hurdles to social enterprise are good ideas and funds for large-scale endeavours. It is best for new organisations looking at establishing a social enterprise to seek advice from the business community and start small. Conscious of his extensive involvement in politics, I was curious about his view of government's role in enabling social enterprises to succeed. He said this varies from country to country, whereas in the UK the government is quite active in its support, the Thai government mainly plays no role in incentivizing social enterprise. What's more, Viruvaija would like to keep it like that. The best thing they can do is to kindly stay out of the way, he said. So why use business as a vehicle for responding to the needs of society? Why not just have a charity? He said we need to ensure that our poverty eradication and education initiatives performed under our NGO have long-term sustainability. And we were not entirely dependent on outside donations. The social enterprises we've established have earned approximately $150 million over 25 years and fund approximately 70% of our development endeavours. We would not have been able to accomplish half as much as we have without our social enterprises. While governments need to be more actively involved in supporting sustainable business, companies and societies should not wait to be handed social solutions on a platter. Social entrepreneurs make things happen.